Open your Bibles with me this morning, would you, to the very last book of the Bible, to Revelation chapter 1. We'll be in verses 9 through 18 today. The, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, the words are, uh, the scripture is printed on the inside of your worship guide. They'll be on the screen behind us this morning. Uh, oftentimes, week to week, we'll have several uh, notes for you to fill out throughout the sermon. And you'll find that those uh, blanks are, uh, or, or notes or whatever are not there today. And, um, and that's on purpose. I want us to just... Uh, sit and bask in God's word this morning, hearing from it uh, without, without distraction in as much as we can. In the world in which we live, in our current culture and society, there are a great many things that are competing for our attention. Everywhere you go, there, there seem to be flashing lights and lit up billboards and uh, uh, advertisements, all sorts of things that are just calling uh, us to, to look at them, to pay attention to them, to, to behold them, to receive their message and to uh, buy their products. We live in a society that is so jealous for our attention, that, that we have almost become an, an attention deficit disordered culture. We have a hard time looking at anything for very long. Even it seems a half hour television show is, is too long to watch. We've got to wait until we can get it on Netflix without the ads and take 30 minutes and cut it down to 22 this desire to behold things, to look at things, to, to set our eyes on those things that, that capture and arrest our attention is, is a part of our function as human beings to worship. All of us will worship something. And in our attention deficit disordered society, we are tempted and, and invited to worship all sorts of things that are not really worth setting our eyes upon. What we really need is something. We need one thing that is truly beautiful, truly lovely, truly glorious, that is worth fixing our eyes on. And that one thing worth truly fixing your eyes upon today, my dear friends, is the risen Jesus, glorified and reigning and coming again to make all things new. Easter is an awesome opportunity in the year. For us to revisit the gospel that we love and remind ourselves of every single week. That God, who is perfect, who is perfectly holy, who is all-powerful, has created each and every one of us, every person in this room, that we might know him and love him and worship him. The gospel begins with bad news. Knowing that we are created this way... The bad news is that each of us has sought to glorify, to worship something else, something other than the God who created us to know, love, and worship Him. The Bible calls this worship of other things, this glorification of things that are not God. The Bible calls this sin. And in our sin, we have separated, we have broken our relationship with God. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ begins with bad news. And the bad news is that in our sin, we are deserving of death and eternal separation from God. But, there's good, but, but the good news comes in, right? The good news is only good because the bad news is so bad. 
The good news is this, that God who created us to know him, to love him, to worship him, did not leave us in our sin and brokenness, but instead he makes a way for us to be united to him again, to have our sins forgiven, to be right with him. And this he does by sending his son, Jesus, God in flesh, to live a life without sin, without that heart of rebellion against God. And Jesus, after living a sinless life, is put to death unjustly on a cross some 2,000 years ago. And there, as Jesus, the Son of God, hung in sinlessness, dying for sins that he did not commit, God poured out all of his just and righteous wrath and anger against our sin on his Son. Jesus paid for our sin there on the cross. He paid for your misdeeds, for your immoral thoughts, for the things that that keep you up at night and convict your conscience. Jesus died to bring you forgiveness of those things. He was buried, and on the third day he rose again. It's his resurrection. That way that we celebrate, especially today, we celebrate his resurrection every day. Christ is not just risen on Easter. Christ is risen every single day. Every day is resurrection day. And because Jesus is risen from the dead, he has power and victory over sin and death and all the things that keep you from God. And the good news of the gospel is that forgiveness of sin and a right relationship with God, friend, may be yours today if you'll trust in Christ. Christian, it is yours today because you have trusted in Christ. And yet in our attention deficit disordered society, we are tempted to look at other things all the time that are not Christ. Friends, this Easter Sunday, this Resurrection Day, I want to point us to Jesus. I want us to behold our Lord, risen and reigning and glorified. Today we'll be reading from the book of Revelation. It's the last book in the Bible, the one that many preachers try to avoid. Because it's so figurative and its language and its intense imagery is is often very difficult to get a solid handle on. But in all, all of the book of Revelation, there's one theme that stands above the rest. Jesus Christ is victorious. John the Apostle, the disciple whom Jesus loved. John who authored the gospel that goes by his same name. And the three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John to the churches of Asia Minor. John is the author of this book as well. As he writes... He's telling the story about how when he was in exile on the island of Patmos because of his unwillingness to stop preaching the gospel of salvation by faith in Jesus. Jesus appears, he receives a vision of the risen Lord while he's there in exile. This book of Revelation is at once a letter to seven churches that are mentioned in chapter 1 verse 11, which we'll see in a moment. And this book is also a vision of the cosmic reign of Jesus Christ as he makes all things new in their time. In our text today, as John is transported in spirit on the Lord's Day on Sunday, there in exile, he, he hears behind him a voice that, that comes to him like a trumpet, instructing him to write down what he sees and to send it as a letter to seven churches in ancient Asia Minor. What John relates in the verses that we'll look at this morning is a vision of the risen and glorious Jesus. The Jesus who rose from the grave that first Easter Sunday and the Jesus who often gets overlooked today among so many technicolor dyed eggs and peanut butter cups. Dear friends, let us behold Jesus today. Would you stand with me as we read from God's word? Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. 
The Apostle John, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. The word of the Lord, you may be seated. What we need, dear friends, this Easter Sunday and every day is something better to behold, something worth fixing our eyes upon. And I contend this morning that there is nothing better on which to fix our eyes than the risen and reigning glorified Jesus that John sees in his vision. Let us look at John's vision of the risen Jesus. In verse 12, after hearing that sound like a trumpet behind him, telling him to write down all that he sees, John turns in this vision to find and see seven golden lampstands. Seven golden lampstands. Verse 20 of Revelation chapter 1 tells us that these lampstands are representative of the seven churches that John will address his letters to. As lights of the gospel to the world, these lamps, these churches are elevated like cities on so many hills who let their light shine before men. These lampstands are made out of gold, a costly and valuable material indicating the great worth that the body of Christ has to God, to Jesus the Son. In the middle of the lampstands, as one who is simultaneously lit by the lamps and who is tending to their care is the risen and glorified Jesus, the Son of God. And John describes his appearance several ways. Friends, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on the one who appears like a son of man, one like a son of man. This language, son of man, is reminiscent of Daniel chapter 7, the, that Old Testament prophet who prophesied several hundred years before Jesus was ever born, who saw one like a son of man who was God himself. In Daniel, the, the prophet Daniel has a vision of one like a son of man appearing before the ancient of days who is God the Father. And this one like a son of man who appears before the ancient of days receives all dominion and glory. That phrase, son of man, that title is Jesus' own favorite name for himself. He uses it to refer to himself over 80 times in the four gospels of the New Testament in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
There is no doubt, dear friends, that this is the fully divine, fully human son of God who was raised in glorified flesh on the third day and who ascended to the right hand of the father to reign over the cosmos. This one, like a son of man worth fixing your eyes upon, is Jesus risen and glorified. He comes like one. He comes as one like a son of man. And he is shown, he is depicted clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. This long robe is meant to resemble that of the Jewish high priest who would enter into the most holy place of the temple to offer atonement for the sins of the people, but once a year. But this gold sash around the chest of the risen Jesus designates him not just as a priest, but also as a king, as royalty. The risen and glorified Jesus is both priest and king. He is the one and perfect mediator between God and men. He is the only one who could pay for our sins. And he is the only one who can take us to the Father. Jesus Christ is raised and glorified. Dear friends, as a kingly priest who with authority over all the universe makes intercession, he goes to God on your behalf between us sinful men and a holy God. Fix your eyes on Jesus, of whom the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. Again, we have language that's reminiscent of Daniel chapter 7 again, where the ancient of days, there that appears before Daniel, is presented as one with hair that is white like wool. Snow white hair is what it sounds like. It's a sign of age. God in flesh, the risen Jesus, understand this, Christian, is infinitely and eternally old. But rather than growing weaker with age, the image that we have here of Jesus is one of unmatched strength and power. Over all of the ages of eternity, his strength has not dwindled. Over the last 2,000 years since he has risen from the dead, he has only grown in power. Yes, his hair may be white like wool, but he is, and he is ancient, but dear friends, he is mighty. He appears as one whose eyes were like a flame of fire. The blazing eyes of the Lord Jesus are a picture of his infinite holiness, his sinlessness, his purity. Fire is itself a symbol of both power and purity. Fire is a strong element, has the ability to burn things up, has the ability to destroy whole forests and villages and landscapes. And it also has the power when when confined and, and used the right way to purify that which needs purification. It is fire that is used to melt gold so that it might be refined and purified. Upon all that Christ sets his fiery gaze is the revealing and purifying flame of divine truth. To look into Jesus' eyes is to see not only who he is, friend, but to know who you are. There is no hiding from his sight, and there's nothing that remains unseen or unknown by him. It is hard to look this Jesus in the eyes. His feet, John says, were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. The appearance of the feet of Jesus is glowing hot bronze just just out of the, the crucible is to denote that his power cannot be withstood. No one will be able to stand against him as he brings everything in the cosmos under his submission. To be with him is to share in his victory and to be against him is to endure sure and certain defeat. His voice, John says, was like the roar of many waters. 
Louder than the combined roar of Niagara or Victoria Falls is the voice of Jesus. His voice is not just loud, but it is majestic. And when Jesus speaks, his voice arrests the attention of all who hear. There is no way to hear the voice of Jesus and turn to look at anything else. In his right hand, John says, he holds seven stars. Verse 20 of the same chapter tells us that these are the angels of the seven churches. Churches to which John is addressing these letters. The same word for angel in the New Testament can also mean, and more often does mean, messenger. It's the Greek word angelos, and it can mean either angel or messenger, a human messenger. The context in which these stars appear seems to indicate that they are not the guardian angels of the churches of Asia Minor, but they are symbolic of either those human messengers who will carry the letters that John is writing to the churches, or they are a a figurative way of speaking of the leaders, the pastors of the churches to whom these letters are going. So see this, the risen Jesus is glorified by the churches who are like lampstands, golden lampstands, lighting him up all all around and even as he tends to their wicks. But the risen Jesus also holds in his strong right hand of favor and protection those he has placed as leaders and messengers to his church. From his mouth, John tells us, came a sharp two-edged sword. The image of the spoken word of the glorified Jesus is one of division. That's what swords do. They divide things. They cut stuff in half. The word of the gospel. That sinners stand in need of forgiveness. That we who have rebelled against God need salvation through faith alone in Christ. Friends, that is a word that divides. It divides those who believe that message, who recognize their sin and want to turn from it to place faith in Christ, from those who reject it and who deny it. It divides those who say, yes, I do need saving God from those who say, I'm just fine on my own. Thank you very much. The word of the gospel is a word that divides and it is Christ's word, which he spoke. And it is the work that he has done. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse six, no one comes to the father except through me. This is an undeniably exclusive statement by Jesus. There's one way to know God who created you, says Jesus, and it is through me and no other way. This divisive, exclusive statement divides between those who have truly repented of sin and believed on Jesus as Lord and those who would deny him or merely play at knowing him. And yet at the same time, Jesus is himself the incarnate word of God. John's gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 begins, In the beginning was the word, speaking of Jesus, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him, nothing that has been made was made. He is a righteous and a truthful judge of the hearts of humanity. Jesus wields the sword of his word not with the, the bluntness of Braveheart with his broadsword, but with surgical precision. He wields a mighty word, but he handles it ever so deftly. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13 says this. The word of God is living and active. The word of God that we hold in our hands this morning is living 
and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face, John says, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is to say in simplest terms that there is nothing that surpasses the glory and majesty of the risen Jesus. Now, I don't recommend, but if you've ever tried looking straight into the sun, it is a difficult thing to do. It is a tempting thing to do. Even when there's a a, a partial or a total solar eclipse, we want to look at the sun to see what it looks like because it's the only thing in the sky that outshines every other light on earth. It, it, It grasps our attention. It calls us to look at it. And yet at the same time, it is dangerous to look at. The appearance of Jesus is intensely powerful. See this image. And his glory is hard to look on by, who, by we who are not holy. And like the sun, though he is difficult to behold, straight on. The way his glory shines upon everything else draws our gaze to him. Dear friends, see the risen Jesus. And then be like John and respond to him the right way. Verse 17 says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This verse tells us that Jesus cannot be looked upon without an overwhelming sense of holy terror. To look Christ in the face is to be confronted with his perfect holiness and his divine power. It is to see at once the depth of your own sin and your need for God's mercy. When Isaiah received his vision of God seated on his throne in Isaiah chapter 6, some 700 years before Jesus was ever born, he saw several angelic beings surrounding the throne of God and all together singing over and over and over again, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And in the presence of God, in Isaiah's vision, the whole earth shakes in reverence. The knees of the earth tremble in the presence of God. Isaiah responds to the Lord in his vision. Woe is me. I am undone for I am a, I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So friends, when John falls down as though dead at the feet of the risen and glorious Jesus, he is responding the only way that any human would respond or can respond when confronted with the unveiled and full vision of the risen and glorified Jesus. To see Jesus face to face is to have upon your heart and your mind and in your eyes a sense of deep and holy terror. This picture of Jesus... The one like a son of man with a long robe and a golden sash and white hair and blazing eyes and feet like bronze, a voice like many waters holding the messengers of the church in the one hand with a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his other. This image of Jesus, this picture of Jesus is not a picture of what Jesus looks like. 
That would be really weird if Jesus looked like this. John is not giving us a picture of what Jesus looks like, but of what Jesus is like. This description is not not so much about his physical appearance as it is about his divine nature and his character and his power and glory unveiled. And Jesus is truly terrible. Now listen, he's not terrible in the sense of being morally bad. He's terrible in the sense of being truly terrifying to look upon. There's no wonder then why C.S. Lewis uses the image of Aslan the lion the son of the king across the sea to stand in as a picture of Christ in the Chronicles of Narnia. Larger than he ought to be and with fangs and claws, powerful enough to tear armies limb from limb and a roar that can be heard all across Narnia. Aslan is an unstoppable force to be reckoned with. All the much and more is Jesus risen from the dead and returned to the glory he has had from all eternity. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But the rest of verse 17 tells us that this terrifying and terrible, this righteous Jesus does the unexpected. The one who has power to to rip John limb from limb and be justified in doing so instead reaches out the right hand that previously held the messengers of the churches. And he lays it upon John saying, fear not. Fear in the face of Jesus is the right response. Fear in the face of the risen king is the right response. Coming face to face with his glory and with his holiness ought to drive us to cry out, Woe is me. I am a sinner. I am undone. I have no defense for my immoral actions. I have no defense for who I am and what I've done. I am finished. But to those who humble themselves and recognize their sin and own their unholiness and and recognize their need for God's mercy to those, Jesus gently lays the right hand of his favor and grace upon them. And he says, brother, sister, don't be afraid. The end of verse 17, the beginning of verse 18. This Jesus, who is described by John in all of his glorious and mighty and terrifying appearance, speaks a word about his own identity. Now this one who who comes with an appearance that is virtually indescribable in human language speaks. And he says to John, his disciple, these words, I am the first and the last. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 8, God the Father speaks to John saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Jesus says essentially the same thing. I am the first and I am the last, which means that he is God the same as the Father is. He is eternal like the Father. He is unchanging with the Father. He is one of the same nature and substance as the Father. Jesus is God. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a moral man. He's not one who just died to give us a good example of what it looks like to be nice to other people. He's God with skin on. He's God in blue jeans and Chuck Taylors who gave his life to ransom us from death and sin and Hades. He is the first and the last. Jesus says, I am the living one. This phrase calls to mind the name that God gives to himself and shares with Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. When Moses says, if I go to Pharaoh and I tell him that God has sent me, what shall I say that the name of the God is? And God says, I am. 
You tell them, I am sent me to you. That word I am comes from a Hebrew verb, which means to be. And and it's used in the present tense. So God's name is I am. Not I was or I will be, but I am. God is not something in the past. He is not something in the future. He is always. Jesus says, I am the living one. The I am of Exodus is the living one who now speaks with John. He says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. And friends, he tells John the gospel, I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. This is an obvious declaration of Jesus' physical death on the cross of Calvary. The death that, uh, that, that he died in, in place of us, in, in place of our sin that we looked at just two days ago on Good Friday. Jesus, the risen and glorified Lord, is God. He is divine and he is fully human. He died. He didn't just pretend to die. He didn't act like he was dying. It wasn't one of these swoon theories where he seemed to go into a sort of a coma, but then he was revived a few days later. No, he really died. But alas, dear friends, he did not stay dead. But he rose from the grave never to die again. His was not a mere resuscitation, but a true resurrection. I died, says Jesus, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Keys are a symbol of authority, both to chain, both to lock up and to set free. And Jesus holds this authority over the greatest of enemies of all humankind, over death and the grave. Having risen from the dead, never to die again, Jesus has defeated death. And as its defeater, he is the one who reigns over it. Moreover, dear friends, Jesus holds authority over the grave. Hades is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew place of the dead called Sheol. The significance then of holding the keys to this place, holding the keys to the lock of the door, is that Jesus alone has power to deliver from the dead, from the grave, any who are imprisoned by it. Dear friends, behold the risen and reigning Jesus. The one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest, The hairs of his head being white like white wool, like snow. His eyes like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice like the roar of many waters. Holding in his right hand seven stars. And from his mouth coming a sharp two-edged sword. His face like the sun shining in full strength. Behold the risen and reigning Jesus who says to those who humble themselves in faith before him, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Christian, know this. The man of sorrows who on Good Friday gave up his life for the sins of mankind is a king who reigns forever. The lamb that was slain for our sins is a lion ready to roar. The Galilean teacher who welcomed the children is the God who destroys the wicked and says to those who repent of their sin and believe in him, do not be afraid. 
Jesus of Nazareth, who was unjustly put to death for crimes he had not committed, is raised and glorified as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And friends, this is not an alternate version of Jesus. This is Jesus as he really is. Christian, behold your King. Behold your King this day and every resurrection day. You want something to fix your eyes on? You want something to get your attention? You want something to look to, to to anchor your life in the storms of a difficult and changing and tumultuous culture? Look at Jesus, the one who never changes, the one who has all power and glory and dominion forever and ever. This is the king we worship, Christian. Church, this is the Jesus that we give our lives to each and every day. This is the one that we sing to. This is the one who is returning again to rescue us and to make this world new. This is the Jesus you want to worship. It may be that as you sit here today, you realize that you've never placed your life and trust in this Jesus. Maybe because your picture of Jesus is always inadequate. Maybe your picture of Jesus was gentle Jesus, meek and mild, who likes to, you know, pet sheep and play with kids. And you've looked at that Jesus and you said, with all the sin in my life and all the junk that I've done, that Jesus can't save me. Friends, see Jesus as he is. Jesus who holds the keys of death in Hades. Jesus, God in flesh who is risen and reigning forevermore, who died for your sins and who rose from the dead to prove I have power over your sin. Friend, you who have not trusted in Jesus because you thought Jesus was too weak to save you, see who Jesus is in all his glory. This Jesus is mighty to save. There is no sin that he has not paid for. There, there is no wrongdoing in your life that he cannot make right in you. There is no person that is beyond the reach of his grace. Dear friend, Jesus is strong. Jesus Jesus is mighty. Jesus is powerful. Jesus rules and reigns over the cosmos today. And he wants to reign over your heart. He has made you that ye might reign in your heart and in your life. This Jesus can save you. So if you've not trusted in an inadequate Jesus, Jesus before, see the true Jesus and give your life to him. Perhaps you've not had an inadequate picture of Jesus, but you've just had an, an, an incorrect or, or, or a, a faithless vision of Jesus. Maybe you've recognized the fact that Jesus really did live, that he really did die. You recognize that maybe he even died for my sins or died for sins in a general sense and was raised from the dead. But you know this morning, even all those things about Jesus, that you've not actually repented. You've not turned away from your sin and your selfishness. To believe on Christ to be Lord of your life. Do not leave here this morning fearful today of meeting this Jesus that we have seen face to face. Leave rather with confidence and with joy and with hope for his coming. That when this Jesus comes, you might not be terrified, but you might be filled with greater hope and with greater faith and with greater endurance and confidence in the one that he is. Don't be as one who stands against him, whose feet like burnished bronze will crush on his path to victory. Be like the one who is behind him, following him as he paves the way for your new creation. Dear friend, this morning, turn from your selfishness and sin. Repent. Set it aside. And in your heart, ask God to forgive you and to give you new spiritual life. 
As you turn your eyes upon and place your trust in the risen and reigning, glorified Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, who defeated sin and death and holds the keys to death and Hades in his right hand. There is no safer place to be in all this world or the next than in the hand of Jesus. And you can be, dear friend, today if you will just turn from your sin and trust in him. Easter is resurrection day. I love the empty tomb. I love the appearance of of the risen and glorified Jesus to his disciples in the days following the resurrection. I love all of those things. But dear friends, my hope is not bound up in those events of the past. My hope is bound up in this Jesus who continues to rule and reign and who is coming again. He's the one I want to fix my eyes upon. He is a blazing sun worth blinding myself to look at. This King, this God, this Jesus, in an attention deficit disordered world, is not only something, is not only someone that you can fix your eyes upon, dear friends, he is the one that you must fix your eyes upon. It's my heart's desire and prayer that not a person would leave this place today out of relationship with Christ. It is my desire that everyone who is here today who does not yet trust Jesus, this Jesus as he is, might be saved today, might enter into relationship with him today. Many of you may be wondering, how do I begin a relationship with this Jesus? How do I give my life to the risen Christ? It's very simple. You begin by admitting your sin, your guilt to God, recognizing, yes, I am a sinner and, and your, and recognizing your need to turn from sin and actually desiring to turn from it, admitting you're a sinner and desiring to turn from it. And then the next step is to confess with your mouth. Jesus is Lord. He's King of my life. I know, I believe that he died for my sins and that he was raised from the dead. And I believe he's the only one who can make me right with the father. You admit you're a sinner. You turn from your sin. You confess that Jesus is Lord and you place your faith in him in this life and in the next. And then you just begin following him faithfully every day the rest of your life. Friend, if you don't know Jesus this way, we want nothing more than to share him with you. We want nothing more than to lead you to the the gracious feet of Christ who died for your sins and rose again that first Easter Sunday. And so... In a moment, we're going to close in a time of singing all together. And then after our service is finished, I'll be out in the foyer by that table for our our guests. And friend, if you'd like to know this Jesus today, please come meet me in the foyer and let me know that. Just grab me by the hand, grab me by the shoulder. Let me know that you want to know this Christ today. You want to be saved today. You want to be forgiven of your sins and enter into a new life with Christ today. And I would love nothing more than to spend time praying with you and talking with you about how to become a Christian today how to follow this Jesus. So please come find me. Grab one of our church members. If you came as a guest or a friend of one of our members today, grab them and say, dear friend, tell me about this Jesus. Lead me to this Christ. Help me fix my eyes on this one. Christian, today we're going to close in singing the song that we just sang. Is he worthy? And I ask you, is the Jesus that we have seen in Revelation Chapter 1, this Jesus, 
Is he worthy? Is he worthy? And if he is, Christian, you sing like you've never sung before. He is. He is. And then live it. Not just Easter Sunday, but every Sunday and all the days in between. He is worthy. This Jesus is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our devotion. He's worthy of our lives given to him as living sacrifices every day. He is worthy. Let's pray.